To learn more about Seminars at Steamboat or to view the video recording of this seminar, please visit seminarsatsteamboat.org. Good evening. It's my pleasure to extend a very warm welcome to you as we continue with our 21st continuous season of Seminars at Steamboat. I'm Walt Abbott, Seminars Chair, and today we present the second of five timely nonpartisan public policy presentations on topics ranging from emerging technologies and the environment to social justice and international affairs. The seminars board strives to present seminars that shed light on key issues. Our lineup of expert speakers brings fresh perspectives that challenge our thinking and inspire actions. Your presence here is a reflection of your commitment to staying informed and engaging in critical discussions, and we applaud you. Seminars at Steamboat thrives on your engagement. Ask questions, share your insights, and reflect on different perspectives. The seminars board members express our deep gratitude to all sponsors and all volunteers who make this series possible. Your support enables us to present issues that are impactful year after year, and we do it at no cost of admission. We especially want to recognize today's seminar sponsor, the city of Steamboat Springs. And today's supporting sponsors, Karen and Joel Piasek, and Linda May and John Morrison. And now, here to introduce this evening's speaker and to moderate the Q&A session is Seminar's co-founder, Bob Stein. Good evening. Voting in the United States is in trouble. The Supreme Court just issued two major election rulings, one upholding the protections against discrimination in redistricting under the Voting Act, Voting Rights Act, and one rejecting the independent state legislative's theory. But will these two rulings stem the problems underlying these cases? Rampant redistricting abuse, state legislatures and legislators routinely pushing the limits of their power to manipulate election rules for political advantage. Americans' confidence in the fairness of our elections remains alarmingly low. And there are increasing efforts to question and thwart election outcomes, attacks on officials, and a significant racial turnout gap. We're pleased to have Wendy Weiser here to walk us through these issues and more and address appropriate policy fixes to ensure fairness, integrity, and stability in our elections. Wendy is Vice President for Democracy at the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU Law School 
a nonpartisan think tank and public interest law center that works to revitalize, reform, and defend systems of democracy and justice. And she founded and directed the program's Voting Rights and Elections Project. Remember to send in your questions. We've already gotten a couple, and we'll try to get through as many of them as possible. Please give a big steamboat welcome to Wendy Weiser. Thank you so much, Bob, for that warm welcome, and thank to all of you for being here. It is such an honor to join this Steamboat series and to be part of this really tremendous learning community. And it is a fitting day to be talking about what we can do to improve the fairness and integrity of our elections, because tomorrow, Democrats in both houses of Congress are going to reintroduce the Freedom to Vote Act which is potentially transformative legislation that would establish baseline, baseline national standards for voting and election administration, shore up safeguards against election sabotage, and curb partisan gerrymandering, among other things. This bill, coupled with another bill that was called the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, came very close to passage in the last Congress, winning a majority but failing two votes short of overcoming the filibuster in the Senate. For their part, last Thursday, the House Republicans marked up the American Confidence in Elections Act, their answer to the Freedom to Vote Act. Their bill would withhold federal funds from states that refuse to adopt certain voting restrictions and election procedures and would rewrite the election code for Washington, D.C. You will not be surprised to learn that these bills reflect sharply divergent views about how our elections should be run and what Congress's role should be in that enterprise. But while congressional Democrats and Republicans may not agree on much, it is clear that for both parties, the state of our democracy and the conduct of our elections has become a pressing, urgent national issue. And for good reason. Our electoral institutions as we've just heard, and our democracy are facing acute and, in some ways, unprecedented threats. Of course, the most frightening manifestation of those threats came on January 6, 2021, on the attack on the nation's capital, the culmination of a multi-pronged effort to overturn the results of the 2020 election. But while that effort failed, the threats it revealed remain persuasive, and there are others, too to name a few. Widespread threats of violence against election officials, efforts to sabotage election results or interfere in election administration, extreme gerrymandering, racially targeted vote suppression, severe partisan polarization, rising political violence, cyber attacks, meddling by foreign adversaries, a deluge of disinformation supercharged by new technologies, erosion of trust in our elections and institutions, and chronic underfunding just to name a few. For many of you, as for me, the length of this list is likely alarming. And that's because in part, for, uh, in part because of years of neglect when it comes to our democracy. We've allowed each of these problems to grow and fester for so long without addressing them that they have worsened and metastasized into a daunting multi-symptom illness for our body politic. So the good news 
that I'm here to report is that there are solutions to these problems and steps that we can take to mitigate the harms if we can muster the political will to adopt them. And hopefully I will help um, uh, muster that will uh, um, in this room. But and at bottom, what we most need are baseline national standards for elections and voting rights passed by Congress, along with a court system that can robustly enforce those standards and protect voting rights and election integrity, and a steady stream of adequate funding for election administration to address security needs and other administrative needs. And so I'm going to focus on the national standards. And I'm going to, to bring you to why those are necessary, I'm actually going to go back back to long before a certain New York real estate magnate even contemplated running for president. So one of the first cases I worked on when I was at the Brandon Center, um, we, in addition to being a think tank, we're a public interest law firm, and so we, we litigate cases and, and work on legislation as well. I represented the League of Women Voters of Florida, which in 2005 suddenly found that its long-standing voter registration operations were threatened by a new state law. That came about because a group representing low-income voters had mobilized successfully um, of, um, through voter registration drives and voter mobilization efforts to pass a ballot initiative expanding the minimum wage. And in response, the legislature of Florida passed a new law targeting voter registration drives with a host of new restrictions and Byzantine requirements. And so one of those new requirements was that anybody who was gathering voter registration applications was required to submit those applications to election authorities within two days of collecting them or face criminal penalties and fines for each and every form that was late. This strict rule applied even when the voter registration deadline was months away. For the league, that meant that if one of the local leagues set up a voting, voter registration drive at a county fair on Thursday and then brought in the box of voter registrations on Monday, the resulting fines could bankrupt the individual and the organization. So for the first time in the organization's 100-year history, the league was forced to shut down its voter registration operations in the state of Florida. And scores of other civic organizations did the same. Since the state offered no explanation for why it created this crazy rule, it claimed that this two-day deadline would somehow stop voter fraud, we were left to assume that the natural consequences of this legislation, shutting down voter registration drives, were the intended consequences. A federal court eventually blocked this law, and the league was able to resume its operations after a several-month hiatus. And I actually thought of this story because just last, last week, voting rights advocates won an injunction blocking a similar law in Florida, which I believe was the fourth time the state has tried to put in place a very similar law. Now, this was years before the voting wars would escalate nationally, with states across the country introducing and passing laws restricting access to voting every legislative session. But it was not surprising that this was happening in Florida in 2005, because Florida's election administration system, as most of you will recall, had recently been put under a national microscope during the hotly contested 2000 presidential election. That election ended in what was essentially a statistical tie coming down to just 537 votes in the state. But that outcome could have been easily different had election officials made different decisions about how to design their ballots, which ballots should and which ballots should count, for example. And you might remember that butterfly ballots and hanging and dimpled chads were household terms at the time. 
Voter roll purges were also at issue. My organization discovered that the state had used a deeply flawed and discriminatory list to purge 25,000 voters they deemed suspected felons from the rolls the night before that election. So what political operatives concluded from all of this was that election administration decisions and rules can have an outcome-determinative effect on close elections. And whether or not restrictive voting laws actually do have an outcome-determinative effect on statewide elections, and which ones do and which ones don't, is currently actually being debated and studied by political scientists. But that was the, election that, the lesson that political operatives took then, in the aughts, and a new strategy was born. After the Obama campaign successfully mobilized black voters and others in 2008 using souls to the polls drives, meaning mobilization at church services, several state legislatures like Ohio and Florida discovered that they no longer liked extended early votings, at least not on Sunday. And note that a third of the citizens who had voted in Florida on the Sunday before the election, uh, before election day that year, were black, even though they made up only 13% of the population. So what was the justification for the law cutting back early voting days? Stopping fraud, of course. Whether or not it had any logical connection to the voting restriction at issue, fraud has virtually always been the justification. And so... When you fast forward to the present, when you hear um, allegations of voter fraud being weaponized in an election denial movement, this, uh, know that this has built on a ready-made and long-standing script that was used to justify, and indeed has been used to justify restricting access to voting um, throughout our history. So back to our story. The early voting cuts that I just talked about were part of an explosion of restrictive voter laws that hit the country en masse for the first time in 2011. In that way, 2011 parallels what we are seeing today. But there were also critical differences. For one thing, there was no national election denier movement pressing this agenda. That would come a decade later. And critically, there was a much more robust legal infrastructure for voting rights. Headed into the 2012 election, virtually every one of the new voting restrictions, and they were in 19 states, had been blocked or mitigated by courts or the Department of Justice, in large part because of the Federal Voting Rights Act. There were successful ballot initiatives that repealed some of them as well. Just a year later, the Supreme Court would gut the Voting Rights Act's most powerful provision, its preclearance requirement, in its infamous Shelby County decision. That would usher in a brand new wave of restrictive voting laws, including reviving many of the laws that had been blocked before 2012. Fortunately, the Voting Rights Act still had other tools left to fight discrimination, including a robust nationwide ban on discriminatory laws. After another wave of lawsuits, eventually, the most discriminatory new laws were again blocked and mitigated, um, though in many cases not early enough to prevent damage. And as a result of these court victories for a time, the vote suppression movement subsided, even if it didn't fully go away. Groups like the Brennan Center turned our attention away from studying and fighting voting restrictions to improving election administration. We and others worked with Democrats and Republicans alike in the states on win-win innovations, like automatic voter registration, which improves voter access while enhancing election security and saving money, post-election audits, which shore up, shores up election security and ensures accurate results, 
and legislation curbing partisan gerrymandering. Automatic voter registration, mind you, was also designed to take away the tools and incentives for vote suppression or manipulating election administration that we had already seen in the, in the years prior. If more eligible Americans were being automatically and accurately registered to vote by the government, there would be less of a need for massive voter registration operations. And if the government were regularly updating voter records using current and accurate government data, there would be less need for faulty large-scale purges. Automatic voter registration, like other reforms, proved both wildly effective and popular. It quickly spread, and to this day, it is in place in 22 red, blue, and purple states and D.C., though it has recently come under attack um, by election deniers. This period of calm and modest bipartisan cooperation around elections was short-lived, and two factors combined to supercharge these voting wars again. The first was the Supreme Court's continued march to dismantle voting rights protections in 2019. It again took a swing at the Voting Rights Act, um, largely hobbling the nationwide protections that I had talked about that were left. And the second factor was 2020. Before I fast forward to the current period, I just want to pause and make a few observations about that story, about that early period before 2020. The partisan voting legislation we saw was based on self-interest, not stable policy preferences for how to run elections. This, mind you, is why no other country allows partisan legislatures to set the rules for elections. That is a unique feature of the U.S. system. Put simply, legislators were much more likely to support bills that they thought would benefit their voters and burden voters they wanted to exclude, whether because of race, party, or otherwise. But voter behavior changes over time, providing an endless moving target. And the seesawing support for male voting that we saw in recent years is just a, an example of that, where um, previously um, voters of color, for example, um, did not use that form of voting, and it was largely used by Republican constituencies that flipped um, significantly, or to some extent, in, in 2020. So the second observation I want to make is that absent legal constraints, lawmakers are prone to increasingly brazen measures to press their advantage and entrench themselves and their parties in power. This was especially, this was visible in the vote suppression context, but it was especially visible in redistricting. In the past two cycles, we have seen a spike in gerrymandering and some of the most extreme gerrymanders in history, as lawmakers have increasingly realized that there was no point at which the courts would rein in their abuses. And I should note that the framers understood that political actors have a tendency to try to manipulate election systems in order to keep themselves in power. The framers were especially suspicious of state legislators. In the debates at the Constitutional Convention, James Madison explicitly warned that state legislators would draw unrepresentative districts or would otherwise manipulate election rules to affect outcomes, or as he put it, they would mold their regulations as to favor the candidates they wished to succeed. Others agreed, cautioning against relying on the will of state legislatures who might make improper regulations arising from sinister views. And to guard against this risk, 
Madison argued that it was essential to give Congress the power to override state laws for federal elections because, he said, it was impossible to foresee all the abuses that might be made of the discretionary power. And that's what we have in the Constitution today, in the Elections Clause, congressional power to override these state um, abuses and state legislative um, policies on federal elections. The third observation from the story, lawmakers are very responsive to legal constraints or the lack thereof. Whenever it seemed that the courts would protect voting rights, we did not see a lot of legislative activity to make it harder to vote. The converse was true as well. Indeed, the first wave of voting restrictions that I mentioned in 2011 actually came on the heels of an earlier Supreme Court decision upholding a voter ID law in a way that many had interpreted as a green light to a range of voting restrictions. And the last observation I just want to make about this period is that there was nothing inherently partisan about election administration policy choices. When they are not in a heated political combat or seeking to press their advantage, Democrats and Republicans have been able to achieve bipartisan support around what works. There were and remain many successful examples to draw from in the states today. So I tell this story because these themes have the seeds of the solutions that we need today. Legal constraints are needed to prevent lawmakers from abusing their powers when it comes to elections. Clear and strong legal standards breed stability. And we can find model election policies in corners not infected by partisan political gamesmanship. Good election policies do not have a partisan valence. I also tell this story because many people mistakenly believe that the problems with our elections started with Donald Trump and the election denialist movement that he spawned. That is not the case. While this may have amplified, exacerbated, or built off of pre-existing policies in the system, it, it was um, not new. Of course, what happened after 2020 was more than just a continuation of prior trends. January 6th and the campaign to discredit the 2020 election opened up new dangers and left some deep scars. As we heard, among the most serious, an alarming erosion of trust in our election system among a sizable portion of the electorate. Today, 30% of Americans and a majority of Republicans falsely believe that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. And many do not believe that our system can fairly determine future elections. This has spawned an election denialist movement that has and continues to wreak havoc on our elections, supercharging the existing pathologies that I've talked about and creating new ones. And I'm going to focus on two. First, the new disinformation-fueled rise in attacks on election officials. Many of you may have heard Colorado's Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, talking about the campaign of harassment and threats of violence that she has had to endure since 2020 just because of her job. She is by no means alone. At the Brennan Center, I have the privilege of working with current and former election officials, um, both in our office and around the country. And as the people closest to the election system, they are in many ways the canaries in the coal mine, and many of them report being under severe stress and constant attack. The Washington Post actually published an illustrative story of a local election official from Maricopa County, Arizona, named Bill Gates. 
a lifelong Republican who has endured a relentless campaign of harassment and threats since 2020. And these attacks have come not only from members of the general public, but also from the state legislature and the state attorney general. He and his family have been forced into hiding twice while counting votes. This is the new reality of election administration in much of America today. The Brennan Center has been conducting national surveys of local election officials for several years now. And according to our latest survey, nearly one in three election officials have been threatened, harassed, or abused for doing their jobs in the last few years. More than one in five fear being assaulted on the job, and almost half fear for the safety of their colleagues. And for election officials who work in majority-minority districts, those numbers are even higher. Election denier lawmakers are targeting election officials as well. They've introduced a raft of new criminal laws targeting election officials. Some would create crimes out of minor mistakes. A number would also impose criminal penalties on election officials for helping ensure that citizens can vote. Lawmakers in Nebraska, for example, just did introduce a bill that would subject election workers to a misdemeanor, a misdemeanor fine for every time they fail to ask for and verify a voter's ID. Texas now makes it a crime for any election worker to solicit the submission of mail votes, even where the voter is entitled to vote by mail. The penalty for encouraging a voter to apply or, or to return a mail ballot is up to six months in prison and $10,000 in fine. As Isabel Longoria, our client, and the former Harris County election official put it, this law makes it a crime for me to do a critical part of my job. And as you can see, the attacks on election officials, while new, are not disconnected from the ongoing push to restrict access to voting. Election officials are being targeted both for refusing to go along with efforts to challenge election results and for facilitating broader voter participation. All of this is taking a very heavy toll. Among other things, experienced election workers are leaving their jobs in droves nationwide. One in five election officials plan to leave by the 2024 elections, and some states have seen far more than that leave. And in many cases, those officials are being um, replaced by election deniers, opening the door to some new threats, which we can talk about later. The second big threat that I want to talk about in the current period is escalating abuses by state legislatures, following on the theme from the earlier period. Election denialism is supercharging that pre-existing threat, the tendency of unchecked legislatures to embrace anti-democratic tactics to entrench themselves and their allies in power. So since 2020, state legislatures um, who embraced election denialism have used their powers in many ways to try to discredit the 2020 election or pave the way for its reversal. But they've also worked to change the law to facilitate election subversion in the future. Lawmakers in half the states have introduced hundreds of bills that would make it easier for partisans to meddle in election administration and outcomes. This is something we've not seen before. The most extreme bills would empower legislatures to flat out override election outcomes. Thankfully, those have not passed, but the bills that have in more than a dozen states are still very troubling. They include new laws that transfer powers and responsibilities away from 
professional election officials to more partisan actors, and laws creating legal mechanisms for partisans to call elections into doubt, among other things. Not surprisingly, 56% of the election officials we surveyed said they were really worried about partisan meddling in election official work. The thrust of all of this is to further politicize election administration, threatening stability and integrity of our elections. These aren't the only anti-democratic measures being taken by state legislatures, of course. I've already mentioned the extreme gerrymandering that has been pervasive now for two cycles. Um, and we're also seeing extremely gerrymandered majorities um, who, who entrench themselves in power then use that power to marginalize their political opponents. And of course, the election denial movement has supercharged the state legislative push to restrict access to voting. We've just commemorated the 10-year anniversary of the Supreme Court's Shelby County decision hobbling the core protections of the Voting Rights Act. Over that time, 29 states have passed 94 new laws restricting access to voting. More than two-thirds of those laws, 65 of the laws in 27 states, were passed since 2020. The sponsors of those laws, in many cases, are the same legislators who questioned the 2020 election result. And while the overall impact of these voting restriction laws is still being studied, it is clear that they shut out tens and some hundreds of thousands of eligible voters, and they target and disproportionately harm voters of color. And I, I wanna just highlight some recent research that we've done at the Brennan Center, because while overall turnout in recent election cycles has been high and at historically high levels in many cases, we've seen a sharp increase in the racial turnout gap alongside this push to restrict access to voting. In Georgia, for example, where turnout went up overall in the last election, black voter turnout decreased and the white-black turnout gap expanded by almost 50%. In Alabama, the white-black turnout gap tripled from 3% in 2012 to 9% in 2022. Nationally, the racial turnout gap is at the highest point it has been at any national election since at least 2000. All of this is happening against the backdrop of a systematic erosion of legal protections for voting rights and democracy. We've heard a little bit about this um, in my earlier story. Since 2008, the Supreme Court has systematically weakened legal protections against democratic abuse. It has issued decisions gutting the Voting Rights Act's core protections against racial discrimination. It has swept away campaign finance safeguards that were in place for more than a century. It has slammed the door shut on legal efforts to address even the most extreme instances of partisan gerrymandering even as it acknowledged that the practice cannot be squared with the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection. And it has shut down almost every recent litigation effort to protect voting access, often with little or no explanation through its shadow docket. So this term's voting rights cases that we just heard about must be viewed in that context. In these cases, the court left standing existing legal frameworks and didn't advance voting rights further. In Moore v. Harper, 
the Corps rejected the independent state legislature theory, which was a radical theory that state legislatures should be free or independent of all the usual checks on their power, state constitutions, state courts, state executives, when they regulate federal elections. And had the court adopted this novel approach, it not only would have undermined voting rights, but it would have completely upended our elections. In Allen v. Milligan, the second case, the court declined to reverse the 40-year-old Voting Rights Act test for discrimination in redistricting. But it did so after blocking a lower court decision striking down a discriminatory map in Alabama, ensuring that the 2020 elections were held under an illegally discriminatory map. Both cases were certainly a cause for relief, but not celebration. Indeed, those cases should have never made it up to the court in the first place. That they did reflects how much the court has been open to radically rewriting the law on voting rights as it has in so many other areas in, in the past couple of years. So I've painted a pretty grim picture of where we are. <laughs> There's reason for hope too. So until recently, the problems with our democracy grew under the radar. People weren't paying attention. No longer. Americans understand that our democracy is in trouble and needs shoring up. That is why we're talking about this here today. And that is why over the past few years, we've also seen the really heartening emergence of a broad-based pro-democracy movement. That movement recognizes that we can't fix our problems if our democracy is not working. There is a broad well of support for strengthening our democracy and putting in place um, the reforms that I'll talk about soon. And it is that movement that has vaulted democracy reform to the top of the national agenda. Many states, I, I've talked about the states that are um, going backwards, but many states are in fact moving forward with a pro-democracy agenda, expanding voting access, curbing gerrymandering, and putting in place critical protections against security threats, attacks on election workers, and election subversion. Colorado is one of those states. Um, but as I noted, the Brennan Center has been tracking election legislation for well over a decade. And the number of states that have been passing laws expanding access to voting for several years now has far outstripped the number of states that are rolling back voting rights, even at the peak. That is very heartening for our ability to move forward. Courts, too, while um, in some ways um, inadequate, have been a source of protection. State Supreme Courts have stepped in to protect democratic rights in some cases, and especially in the case of countering extreme partisan gerrymanders in the wake of the US um, Supreme Court's failure to do so. Courts were also critical to pushing back on election subversion efforts in 2022 ordering recalcitrant election workers and um, county officials to certify results and providing accountability for acts of intimidation and violence. And in many cases, the people themselves, voters, are taking the matters into our own hands. In the last four years, we have seen dozens of pro-democracy ballot initiatives pass across the country, typically by lopsided bipartisan majorities. This is popular. Those, that's the hopeful story. And um, you know, existing safeguards, though, are not enough. 
Despite the progress in many states, we can't rely solely on state legislatures and election officials to address these problems, since so many of them are driving the problems. Courts, too, while critical to protecting democracy, um, are not enough, especially since the US Supreme Court has systematically undermined voting rights and democracy protections. Reliance on state courts while filling the gap also is not enough, and what just happened in North Carolina is a good example of that. There the state had um, struck down um, the congressional map as an extreme partisan gerrymander. That was actually the fact pattern that was up in the case, uh, before the Supreme Court in the independent state legislature case. While that case was pending in the Supreme Court, the, um, there was a, an intervening election, and the partisan makeup of that court flipped. The court actually revisited the decision and threw it out and reversed itself, paving the way for a new partisan gerrymander to move forward in North Carolina. While voters can provide a critical check, the ability of voters to hold their representatives accountable for their abuses of power is stymied to some extent by those very abuses. And ballot initiatives, while they've made a difference in a lot of states, more than half the states don't have that as an option. And state legislatures um, are now increasingly trying to make it harder for initiatives to pass or get on the ballot so that they can continue to press forward with their agendas. And there's a big effort in Ohio right now to do just that, to thwart two ballot initiative efforts that are underway. In other words, we need Congress to solve this problem. They are the only one that can fill the remaining gaps um, to protect our democracy. So what do we need? What have we learned? We need clear and enforceable laws and standards. The standards should directly prohibit and address the principal abuses we see, but they should also provide a national baseline of best practices that guarantee voting rights and cannot be manipulated for partisan advantage. By removing discretion from state and local actors over certain major election decisions, Baseline standards would also depoliticize election administration and diffuse the incentives for attacks on election officials and workers. They would also make it harder to take advantage of discrepancies in state practices to sow disinformation and distrust. The standards that we need should ensure that all eligible voters have an opportunity to cast a ballot, guarantee a fair, accurate, and expeditious process for counting these ballots, protect against race discrimination in voting, curb gerrymandering, guard against partisan interference, and protect election workers. And so those are the standards. All of that are the ones that are in the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act that I mentioned at the beginning of this talk. Those draw on best practices from across the country to provide those baseline national standards and diffuse the the heightened political environment that has grown up around our elections. I want to pause on a note on bipartisanship. From listening to the current debates, you might be led to believe that the issues of voter access and election administration have always been partisan issues. As we've heard, that is not the case. Many of the core reforms that are in the Freedom to Vote Act are based on innovations that were first developed and widely supported by Republicans in the states. That includes 
expanded early voting and mail voting, methods of voting that were previously non-controversial. And they were, and in many states still are, disproportionately used by demographic groups that skew Republican. As I mentioned, the automatic voter registration proposal that um, is in the bill is modeled after the um, policy proposals that were moving in the states. That reform was modeled after, um, built off of successful innovations that the Republican Secretary of State of Arizona first put in place. The same is true of many of the best election practices that are in the Freedom to Vote Act. These reforms are in place, again, in red, blue, and purple states. Redistricting reform has especially long enjoyed bipartisan support as both political parties have suffered abuse and we are still seeing progress with both political parties in some states. The Voting Rights Act, a critical component of the national legislative agenda, until recently also enjoyed broad bipartisan support, even in Congress. The 2006 reauthorization of that law passed by overwhelming bipartisan majority in the House and was unanimous in the Senate, 98-0, and it was proudly signed into law by President George H.W. Bush. It was only after the Supreme Court gutted the heart of that act and Republican state legislatures started leaning into this strategy of restricting voting um, in the states, free of major constraints, that the partisan divisions around this law, around the Voting Rights Act, metastasize. And I should say it is not completely partisan, the um, voting rights, um, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act was actually co-sponsored by Senator Lisa Murkowski, a Republican in the Senate, so it did enjoy some bipartisanship. These divisions have become sharper and more intractable since 2020, and that one of the major parties has embraced an election denial platform. Just a few weeks ago, I testified at a House hearing on congressional election reform before two major committees. The partisan divide in Congress on these issues was as powerful as I've ever seen it. The questions made clear that there would be no effort to come together. There was no effort to try to solve these problems, at least not without a major crisis or change. While that might be cause for concern, and while a bipartisan bill is certainly pref preferable, our democracy can't wait to put in place these critical safeguards. If only one party will support democracy reform, then we'll have to go with a bill supported by only one party. I certainly hope that's not the case, and I hope that the Republicans come along and try to work on this important legislation, but we cannot let these problems with our democracy metastasize any further. As he was leaving the Constitutional Convention, Ben Franklin was famously and perhaps apocryphally asked what kind of government they had created he supposedly answered, a republic if you can keep it. It is up to all of us now to make sure that we can keep it. I'll look forward to your questions and answers to talk about what you and what the rest of us can do to make that happen. Thank you for your time.
Thank you, Wendy. There are a lot of questions. I'm going to start with one which I think came from the audience, but I'm not sure. <laughs> How will AI influence elections? <laughs> so, Won't well. misinformation on uh, social media be amplified, or is there a positive role that AI might play? The answer is yes, yes to both. We are running headlong into a, a, a real amplification crisis of disinformation. <laughs> the social media has, um, has caused disinformation to proliferate. AI is going to, amp is going to multiply that exponentially and it's gonna introduce a whole bunch of other new threats as well. Um, you can target voters very specifically, mimicking voices of people they know or of election officials. Deep fakes are going to be rampant. Um, this can happen at very low cost and at very high volume. So um, both the disinformation impact, the potential um, deceptive practices and misleading voters um, about where and how to vote, and the um, sowing confusion about what is actually true in our elections is something that we are heading right into very rapidly. At the same time, election officials around the country are actually using AI. They're using it to find more efficient ways to reach out to voters and to provide voter information, especially in face of the onslaught of disinformation. So those same tools that are going to be the source of disinformation can provide low-cost ways to actually combat it and replace it with correct information. But there is a lot that we need to do to actually not only... Um, study the, uh, study whether or not there needs to be regulating uh, regulations for AI, but put in place resources and safeguards to um, ensure that the disinformation is, it doesn't overwhelm the correct information that um, we need to make the election run in 2024. You commented in your talk on the role of state legislatures, and uh, the Supreme Court has spoken on this about mm -hmm. the uh, independent state legislators theory. Judge Ludig, a conservative uh, judge who now is uh, retired or senior status, also criticized that theory. Uh, does it have any merit? Is there any role for it? Or do you not think it, or do you think it should just be forgotten if possible? So um, it absolutely should be forgotten. This, was, this theory was made up out of whole cloth. It was ahistorical. It was um, baseless. It is not how the Constitution or the allocation of powers have been interpreted. It makes no sense as a matter of government design. It assumed that the framers had imagined um, state, had, that state legislatures previously existent, independent of the state constitutions that had constituted them and unconstrained by the state courts that had been engaged in judicial review long before the Constitution was formed, it would have eliminated all of the checks and balances on state legislatures when it came to regulating federal elections. So we um, don't take my word for it. We had um, countless prominent historians explaining that this was um, that this was 
ahistorical and contrary to the meaning of the Constitution. And as I mentioned, the framers actually meant the exact opposite. They were suspicious of state legislatures. And while they assumed that state legislatures and set them up to establish elections in the first place, that was the government infrastructure that existed as we were setting up a, a national election, they very much took pains to add in extra protections um, when it came to running federal elections because they were so worried that they were going to manipulate those and engage in abuses like we're seeing today. So that, so they, they gave Congress added powers to completely rewrite the code of federal elections. And that is actually how um, the late Justice Scalia referred to it. So no, no, this um, should, <laughs> This should. I think the Supreme Court has roundly rejected it. I think that headed into the oral argument, there were a number of justices who were sympathetic to it. I think the oral arguments and the presentations in the case were so dramatically lopsided. I should note that there were many briefs, including ours, that demonstrated just how radical, um, how much a damage this would do to our elections if it were adopted. The chaos that would sow, we wouldn't even know what the laws are and what rules were in place, and it might sweep away things that had been passed by, <laughs> um, that had been struck down years ago or that had been passed by ballot initiatives or vetoed by governors, like everything would be confusing and up in the air. <laughs> so I, I, good riddance. Um, and I hope it doesn't come back. <laughs> I agree. You commented about the need to expand voting options. Two different things were mentioned by our community here. First, should you be allowed to vote on your phone? And second, uh, what do you think is the possibility of making Election Day a national holiday. All right. So as to the first question, I'm sorry, but we just don't have a way of making internet voting secure right now. Um, while it, it, it's a, a nice idea and would certainly add convenience, the security risks of allowing um, ballots to be cast online are just simply too great to adopt that in any significant um, way. And especially now, where, as I mentioned, I, I, I haven't talked about the insider threats um, that we're seeing crop up that are actually undermining security from within. But we are, have, there have been increasing reports of foreign adversaries trying to um, hack into our elections, launching cyber attacks, trying to meddle through disinformation as well, but that provides um, real vulnerability for those sophisticated actors who are really trying to mess with our elections. On whether Election Day can become a national holiday, that in fact is one of the reforms that are in the Freedom to Vote Act that we're going to see introduced tomorrow. So um, you should whoever wanted that, you should certainly support that legislation. Um, there are, I, I will say that there, there are other reforms that combined that actually um, are even more powerful in providing that access to voters. If you, the, the bill also, it, it, it 
has a, an expanded period of early voting or a uniform period of early voting nationally, a minimum period that everyone should have. That includes evenings and weekends. And it requires employers to provide a certain amount of paid time off to vote. And those things um, together should also provide the same benefits that um, people might want to get out of an election day holiday. Has the Electoral College outlived its assigned constitutional responsibilities? And if so, what should replace it and how? So, yes. Um, <laughs> the how is difficult, but there's been a, a national popular vote movement that um, there's a, a, a compact. Uh, I believe that Colorado has signed the compact that will go into effect where it's, um, signatory states once uh, um, uh, agree to assign all of their electoral votes to whoever the popular vote winner is. And once a sufficient number of states to make up a majority of the Electoral College um, signed that compact, it will go into effect. And so that might be, uh, that's a clever way within the bounds of the Constitution, which allows states to enter into compacts to try to um, uh, work around the Electoral College and put in place something that um, looks more democratic. This is a different kind of question, but it, it intrigues me as a question, as I am sure your answer will as well. But what do you think is the impression that foreign nations have about the current state of U.S. elections? And does it weaken our standing and ability to negotiate in other fears? So I, I think um, they see, I think foreign nations, um, I, I have heard from speaking with people, are actually frightened by what's been happening here. Many countries and ha have relied on the stability of the U.S. political system and of our democracy, both as a beacon and as a source of stability in their own. And this is helping to contribute to, uh, you know, we are both part of a trend across the world of um, democratic retrenchment and uh, authoritarian um, leanings, but we're also um, really contributing significantly to those trends elsewhere. Um, President Biden actually has hosted several national summits on strengthening democracy, uh, international summits, um, and, and I think um, has said very clearly, as have um, his um, State Department colleagues, that in fact, the troubles of our democracy are weakening us in the world and are making it harder for us to play the leadership role that we ought to be playing. So with the, that's just another reason why we need to get on this and get our house in order. And voting um, is a responsibility. And before you can vote, you have to register. So why are the constant efforts to make registration easier being criticized? What's wrong uh, with having some requirements? For example, uh, there were two questions about what do you think about voter ID? Why should that be a legitimate uh, precursor to registration and voting? So um, on the first question, I think I answered that earlier, is that th there aren't really legitimate reasons to restrict access to voting um, per se. 
um, the, the efforts to roll back um, registration access have um, been and have been found in, in many cases in court decisions to be driven by a desire to keep out new voters or and, and often targeted by race. Um, that doesn't mean that there um, that there aren't um, better practices in how we do voter registration, um, and um, and it doesn't mean that there isn't actual bipartisan support for expanding voter registration availability as we're seeing across the states and and I should say in the public, all of these reforms and all of this partisan division that you're seeing, that is happening among political leaders in Congress and now in a growing number of state legislatures, in the public, we are not divided that way. Vast bipartisan majorities support broad access to voter registration and voting, um, um, reforms that make it more convenient to um, participate. This is not a partisan issue in the public. Um, the second question was on voter ID. Um, voter ID is actually one of those um, trickier issues that because um, a majority of the public actually does support some form of voter ID. What we support voter ID just that, that voters should have to identify themselves. They just shouldn't be asked to show IDs that they don't have, that millions of Americans don't have. And one of the problems with the voter ID bills that we've seen across the country is that they are targeted. They are they cherry pick forms of ID that certain groups of voters don't have <laughs> so that to create sometimes insurmountable hurdles for their participation. And I'll give two examples. There was a law in North Dakota that required um, voter IDs to have a current street address on them in order to count and to be able to be accepted by election officials. But the very large Native American population that were living on tribal lands did not have street addresses. They do not have street addresses in those tribal lands. And this wasn't like an oversight. This was discussed and debated in the legislature before passing this law, and they passed this knowing that that would preclude Native um, residents from being able to vote. That was struck down by a court. Um, in Texas, there, there was a voter ID, a very strict voter ID law um, for the time that the Brandon Center, we, we actually successfully challenged this law a number of years ago um, that made it, um, that excluded some state um, school IDs, it excluded public employee IDs, but it included concealed carry licenses. Like it was, it, it was, you know, it, it a lot of these IDs are, are, are very targeted. So when you look at the details, they're just not fair. They're not designed to um, figure out who people are. They're designed to try to manipulate the electorate. But build, building on that, and you mentioned new, well, actually two new pieces of legislation, one by Republicans, one by Democrats. Mm -hmm. uh, do either of them or do both of them take a similar view on widespread voting by mail? So um, the, um, the bill that the Republicans has put forward has taken the position, uh, the reason why I refer to it as the answer to the Freedom to Vote Act is in, in many ways it reads like a press release. It, um, it has a very long uh, set of findings that Congress has no business regulating elections, despite the very clear authority that was precisely provided in the Constitution. 
It was, um, and the reason why it has very detailed provisions governing the elections for Washington, D.C., which are um, not, last I heard, the, the you know, most serious pressing national issue was Congress clearly also has the authority to um, set all manner of regulations for Washington, D.C. under the Constitution, despite the fact that D.C. actually doesn't have voting representation in Congress. And so they set, they, they set a, a, a model national election code embedded in their um, rules for Washington, D.C. And so there they that was very much um, rolling back access to mail voting in a huge number of ways. It also included the same kinds of um, the deterrence that I mentioned um, were being targeted election officials against people, um, encouraging people to apply for mail um, ballots. So that that legislation is um, is um, in many ways um, mirroring the talking points of the election denial movement that has been. Um, at targeting mail voting um, because of its role in the 2020 election. Um, interestingly, I've been reading that the um, Trump campaign has actually now been shifting on that and mobilizing to try to get his supporters to try to vote by mail. So that'll be sort of an interesting to hear how that gets justified. And I guess that makes the point that I was making before that these kinds of reforms don't have a, a, a natural partisan valence. And, and we don't even know for many of them if they have an overall partisan effect. We, we People think that they do, but some of the social science research suggests that many of these kinds of things don't. Um, when the motor voter law was um, pressed for many years, um, Republicans in Congress blocked it. Um, it ultimately um, was signed into law by President Bill Clinton when there was a Democratic trifecta over the years, it turns out that has not had a net, a net benefit for Democrats. This increased voter registration rates. Surely it improved the administration of our voter registration system, surely, but it did so across the board for everyone. And so I, I think that's, um, you know, it's, it's the short term where the targeting measures to restrict access to voting and the gamesmanship has the impact. And, and part of what we're seeing now is a regular cycle of legislation and new laws that destabilizing each election every time one community is using one form of voting, if they're targeted there, um, it, it, it takes some time before they readjust and are able to use another form of voting. It's not because one form of voting is intrinsically better for Democrats or Republicans um, by and large. So, There was a question based on something you said about the significant number of people in the country who still are election deniers. Yeah. How do you deal with it? I mean, what what can be done to try to resolve these issues? I think that these kinds of fora are one of the things that can be done about it. And I think that it's, to some extent, it's on each and every one of us to actually help restore trust in our mm -hmm. democracy, trust, of course, being the foundation of our democracy and uh, uh, and uh, the peaceful trans <laughs> transfer of power. Um, Ronald Reagan actually called that nothing short of a miracle. And obviously, we're not going to be able to maintain that miracle if we don't restore trust. Um, 
Uh, on a hopeful note, political scientists have long found that one's trust in elections actually varies substantially um, based on whether or not your preferred candidate won that election. So there's some um, reason to believe that the mistrust might wane if um, uh, their preferred candidates are winning. Um, but one of the things that is new, um, so you know, cries of stolen elections aren't new, um, cries of voter fraud are new, but one of the things that are new is the widespread complicity in an amplification of those kinds of cries by many of our nation's political and civic leaders. And that's been fraying that long-standing tacit agreement that we need to work together to uphold the legitimacy of our institutions. So that's now on the rest of us to do that. Um, another hopeful thing that we, we learn from a lot of election officials that we speak to, those who are mistrustful of the election system, those who've been fed misinformation about how it works and what its safeguards are, often actually change their minds when they start participating in the election system. So those who volunteered to be poll workers or election monitors, um, suddenly see all of the safeguards that are in place, see that things are being done by bipartisan teams, seeing that there are lots of processes in place, see that there are chain of custody requirements. This actually restores confidence. And so I would say, all of you, you should get involved in elections, but you should encourage your friends and family and um, election denier uncles to do so as well. <laughs> um, A couple of questions about the Supreme Court. Um, not surprisingly, I'll do one at a time if I can. Uh, do you have an opinion on why the court seems to be consistently undermining voting rights? Were the justices naive about what would happen once prior approval was no longer required for new voting regulations? Or is there an explanation other than their sympathies for one party over the other? When he was um, worked um, for the Department of Justice, um, John Roberts actually famously um, wrote um, uh, wrote a memo about um, why uh, a strategy for um, undermining the Voting Rights Act and why he thought um, why he thought it was. Uh, um, bad policy and and um, and and should be um, overturned. Um, so I, I think that his sympathies have long been um, against the Voting Rights Act. The court has, and as we've learned um, very um, jarringly in, in this term, been systematically going after race conscious remedies. And, um, and has been very skeptical of those. And so that's a, another strand that's been driving this court. But it's really hard to square the court's decisions with, um, with um, any, other, um, any other explanation other than um, a hostility to voting rights and to the court's role in protecting and upholding um, voting rights in our democratic system. Um, this is, as I mentioned, this has been a, a consistent and perhaps the one of the most significant projects of the Roberts Court has been to, um, over a series of many, many decisions, systematically roll back voting rights protections and pull the courts out of the business 
of monitoring and safeguarding the integrity of our um, uh, of the or the fairness of our election system, though, um, it, it, unless um, in, unless it's up to them to decide who won the election. Um, one of the things, though, that it did do, and it, 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 I guess the court doesn't want to see the other the other courts do that, but in in a number of decisions, the court has very con the Supreme Court has very consciously left open the possibility for itself for the Supreme Court to weigh in. Um, and so the, it does remain to be seen um, whether we'll, we'll see more active engagement in the future by the Supreme Court in elections, though um, uh, unlikely in, in protecting voting rights. The Brennan Center has come out in favor of 18-year terms. Yep. Uh, talk a little bit about it, why, and what do you think is the possibility of it actually happening? So court in uh, the trust in the Supreme Court, as you all know, is now at historic lows. It's not just the ethics scandals that are getting a lot of attention. Um, people um, feel that the decisions have been um, very out of touch with the views of the American public and have been rapid and aggressive. So the, the public is um, has a lot less support for the court than it has typically had. And the court has typically actually enjoyed the highest support among all of our nations, of all of the government branches and institutions. So this is a, a real um, a sea change. Um, we support term limits for a couple of reasons. I don't, I'd say the other reason for the lack of support was the increasing politicization of the nomination process and of the and the increasing partisan polarization on the court itself. Um, previously, you couldn't always tell how somebody was going to vote based on the political party the um, the political party affiliation of the president that appointed them. That is no longer the case. Um, that's where the public is at. Um, from uh, the Brennan Center's um, policy perspective, we believe that really life tenure is um, a, an awesome and uh, aggressive power, and no one should hold that much public power for that long. Regularized appointments, also if you take life tenure and you couple it with regularized appointments mm -hmm. so that if you take 18-year terms and then you have every um, two years a president can appoint a justice, what you have is um, it will reduce the political hardball by reducing the stakes of each nomination. It will ensure that the makeup of the court is better aligned with where the public is over time. No other major democracy does it this way, I should say. No other state does it either except for Rhode Island. One of the things that um, we found is that justices who serve for more than a decade uh, are serving more than a decade longer than they used to. So this is new, like things have changed. The justices are staying on the court for much longer. They're living longer. longer too. They are. Some, you know, some are likely to stay on the bench for 35 years. That's nine presidential terms. That's a really long time, again, to wield that much public power and to be reviewing all of that different government activity. Um, we're also seeing it's lopsided. Who appoints which judges? It doesn't actually align with where the public is at. President Trump appointed actually three justices in four years, um, more than President Obama, George W. Bush, and Clinton each appointed in eight years. 
President Carter didn't get to appoint any at all. Um, so that, those are some of the reasons why we're for um, term limits. And, and I should say the public is for term limits as well. This is support for term limits is actually sky high um, and it transcends party lines just like some of these other democracy reforms. Um, people, um, people are very supportive and, and I think that there's real momentum now um, with the, um, with the um, and, and a feeling like the way the court is going right now is, is not tenable something needs to change to restore the integrity and, and the legitimacy of the court that has taken such a hit. And if the Supreme Court is, well, I'll, I'll agree. If, if the Supreme Court is complicated in the way in which term limits may or may not be introduced, think of state courts, because they have a significant role in redistricting uh, in the way in which the lower house uh, federally will ultimately be. Um, there are a lot of different ways in which state court judges are selected. In Wisconsin this past year, over $40 million was spent on an election. We, some people might be happy yeah. with the re result, some not, but what's a better way to select state court judges? Yeah. Um Judges and in more than thirty nine states, um, they actually elect um, their state court judges. Um, not all of the justices actually get there um, by election because um, sometimes there are. Um, if somebody resigns before the end of their term, sometimes uh, the governor can appoint them. But we are seeing in many cases they. Um, what, what's even more pernicious than the election is that they get to run for re-election. That means that the period of time before they're up for election again, their decisions are being made with uh, a future election in mind. We have seen that in that period, judges tend to be much harsher in their sentences. Um, their um, rulings are much more aligned with where they think the electorate that's going to have to elect them is um, going to um, is going to be um, what what we think is um, as a result the what we think is most um, important to do for selecting state court judges is to have one single lengthy term like an 18-year term it could parallel the um, federal election selection um, plan that we have I, I think that um, uh, appointments through uh, w with a commission providing um, uh, the candidates to um, the governor is Colorado um, has that. Yeah, it, that that that's a, a great first step. But even if the first step is an election, um, it is important that it be for just one term and, and that that be a non-renewable term if we want to ensure um, that um, the decisions are actually um, not tainted. Last question, and <clears throat> I hope it's not going to be a downer, but <laughs> how confident are you that anything uh, to help democracy will actually pass given the makeup of the current Congress and what is the role that people like us can play in order to try to ensure that something positive does happen? So I'm actually quite 
optimistic. Um, maybe I do this work because I'm prone to optimism. <laughs> but um, as I mentioned, tomorrow the Democrats are, are, are repassing or uh, reintroducing this legislation. They're introducing it as numbered S1, which is the first numbered bill in, in the Senate, and HR 11, which is the first number that the, um, the minority party gets um, in the House of Representatives um, uh, to um, uh, introduce bills into. So they're signaling that this is still the top legislative priority for the Democrats in Congress, that democracy is job one. And as I mentioned, this is actually not only broadly popular in the states, but it's broadly popular across party lines, um, uh, all um, across the public. And it's been fueling not only a movement, but a lot of voter activity. We, as I, I mentioned that there were ballot initiatives, these ballot initiatives are, you know, are, are actually... There are many of them. They are getting broad bipartisan um, engagement in them. People are hungry to see these reforms and to take these decisions away from politicians so that we can have these stable national rules for our democracy. So, so I'm hopeful. I, I think that it's not going to happen um, in this Congress. I think um, it will have to either happen in a new Congress with a, a different um, Republican uh, makeup that is um, more willing to um, compromise on this, or it will wait the next time the Democrats um, have control of the Congress. As I mentioned, it was just two years ago that this came achingly close to passing and being the law of the land, and we would not be having this conversation today. We'd probably be having the conversation about the case we're working on in the U.S. Supreme Court then to defend that legislation. But <laughs> but I, I think that is um, entirely possible. And again, it was just two votes shy of clearing a filibuster. I, I, that was remarkable. There was um, a large number of the Democrats that voted in favor of um, overcoming the filibuster had previously taken the position that under no circumstances would they want to see the filibuster removed. But there, the, the problems and the crisis facing our democracy was so acute that they felt like that was more important than their commitment to the filibuster. That shows, uh, that shows a lot. So there, there's a, a real commitment behind it. There's a movement behind it. And I hope that you will join that movement I'd say there's a lot that you can do even beyond supporting federal legislation. And I, if I can, well, if I have a few minutes to say a couple of things, I, I, I do want to encourage folks to get involved in elections. Um, support your election officials. They are really under attack. They really need your help and support. As, um, we, as we were talking about before, uh, be part of the effort to combat misinformation, educate yourselves and educate your neighbors. This misinformation is driving real harms, real potential threats of violence. And it's not just against election officials. There's a real um, effort to mobilize um, you know, around ballot drop boxes, perhaps in polling places. This could really escalate. It's part of us, our, our job to de-escalate. And of course, register people to vote, register to vote yourself and vote. Um, so those are some of the things I hope you will do and take steps to support 
this federal legislation, whether it is done on one party line or two, we need to actually have these baseline standards for our democracy. We need to not have our politics center around how we run elections, but around the issues that we're electing people to do for us in our lives. So th this change needs to happen before we tear ourselves apart. Uh, Wendy, I, I really hope that your optimism is infectious. Um, and I want to repeat what you said because it's so, so important as a final word. No matter what your views are, no matter where you vote, it really is your responsibility both to register and to vote. So whether it's in Colorado or elsewhere, it is your responsibility to vote, but only in one place. And thank you all for coming. <laughs> thank you for listening to Seminars at Steamboat. We'd like to thank KUNC for hosting our podcast. Support for seminars comes from the generous support of individuals and organizations in our community. For more information about our organization or to view the video recording of this or any of our previous seminars, please visit seminarsatsteamboat.org.